Welcome to the latest episode of Data Unchained. I'm your host, Molly Presley. So what is this Data Unchained podcast all about? It's really that the paradigm for data access has changed. How data is being used in today's decentralized world, getting data to remote workers, using the cloud, taking advantage of distributed applications and remote infrastructure is a real challenge for IT teams and also for business units trying to use the data. Data Unchained digs into the challenges as well as some of the solutions that organizations have come up with to make data an asset as a global resource. Today's guest is Jean-Marc Holder. He is the Chief Strategy and Innovation Officer at Sequin Genomics. Thanks for joining us, Jean-Marc. Thanks for having me, Molly. So where are you joining from today? Well, today I'm actually in the headquarters of the company in Montpellier in the south of France. It's where the spring has just sprung, actually. And you said that it's a bit of a small fishing village, but we were getting ready to kick off this conversation. That made me feel a little bit jealous. That sounds lovely. Yeah, it's, it's, a great, it's a great environment. And it's actually made it quite easy to hire talent because people just want to come and work here. I bet. In fact, you should call me if you ever need you know, some marketing help out there. That's a place I would love to live. Just beautiful. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about your passion for the industry and kind of your background that brought you to where you are today. Well, I guess I'm a bit of an outlier because my background, I'm actually, I qualified initially as a naval architect of all things. And um, the reason for that is because I was passionate about sailing and I actually participated in the Olympics uh, a good few years ago. And um, that led me to try to, you know, become a boat designer and builder. So I started doing that and then slowly got more and more involved in computers and tech and ended up working in the high tech industry, you know, for quite a while notably with Apple and Silicon Valley and a few other places like that. That's a big shift, isn't it? (laughs) Definitely. Yeah. And then from there, you know, I sort of started, you know, after years in technology and doing things in online advertising, social media, I kind of wanted to get into something with a more direct human impact. And, you know, obviously health, healthcare is a big deal. So I started engaging with the healthcare community and found these two great co-founders and together we 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 launched Sequon Genomics in 2017. So Sequon has been around for just over five years or so. Um, Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about kind of the founding goals and where you are today with your with your research and your business? Sure. I mean, if you if you look at, you know, the, the, the sort of high level objectives is what we say is we want genetic testing to become as easy and accessible as a blood test is today. I mean, that's kind of the mantra behind the company. Right. And what we see is that today genetic testing is still quite a luxury or, you know, sort of a premium service, you know, depending on which part of the world you're at, mo- you know, most healthcare services don't cover it very well. So it's only the very wealthy or the very well insured who have access to it. And paradoxically, everything about personalized medicine, which is the main purpose of genetics in medicine, every aspect of that depends on having lots and lots of people being sequenced, both to understand the specifics of a patient or to have the data necessary to sort of draw conclusions about, you know, what therapies make sense. So for us, that, that's been the driver. How do you make it so that anybody who needs a genetic test can get one at an affordable price in a quick turnaround? So what is your role in that? It's an amazing mission. Um, what is Sequin's role in helping to make that happen? Okay, that's an excellent question. I mean, w- the way we see it is that right now, 
very few labs have the technical skills, the people, um, the resources to do, to do genetic testing. And that means that there's only a few places where you can get tested. And again, if you think of our mission of trying to reduce the cost of, of genetic testing and improve the accessibility, that has to involve getting more and more labs into a position where they can deliver tests. So what we did is we developed a cloud-based system that actually integrates with the, 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 the local lab infrastructure and manages the whole genomic analysis process from the raw data all the way through to the final report that will end up on your doctor's desk. So we don't actually produce the raw data. We aren't a sequencing company. So you buy a box like a scanner. It's called a sequencer that you put biological samples in and it spits out like a huge file of data. And then from there on in, everything else is done on the Sec1 platform. Interesting. I've talked to a lot of folks who have thought about, you know, how do you get a sequencer in every doctor's office? And this is more about once that's been accomplished, how do you get the data um, analyzed, processed, maintained, sovereignty, patient privacy, all those yeah, parts? Is yeah. that the right way to think about it? Well, I mean, actually, there's, there's another wrinkle to the whole thing, because if you look at it, um, you know, th there are two models for doing genetic testing that you can see. And actually, Europe is very centered on one model and North America and a few other countries are centered on another, right? In countries like the U.S., there tend to be very centralized labs right, that are called central labs, actually. Um, there are big, you know, genomic test vendors. They tend to be somewhat pricey and they bring all the samples into one place. So they kind of go for the economies of scale. Now, that works fine in some markets, but if you look at the European market, for example, and actually pretty much most other markets, people want to sequence close to the patient for a couple of reasons. One, for data sovereignty region, reasons, they want to keep control of their data, you know, response time issues. You know, for example, we're doing some interesting projects in the area of the use of genetics in the intensive care units in the emergency room. You know, what, you know, what, what how can we, what 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 can do we have a, a transplant? Can we do a transplant? Is there a donor that matches this recipient? Things like that. So there are really good cases for both of those. If you can think about it long term, things that have a short turnaround time, it may make more sense to do closer to the patient. You know, and we work with companies like Oxford Nanopore that actually have a portable sequencer that you can plug into your USB port, and that sequences right there at the patient's bedside. On the other hand, if you're doing a population genetics program, you know, like the um, English 100,000 Genomes Project or something like that, then it may make sense to centralize everything because cost is everything and turnaround time is slightly less important. So we believe that the, the, the future model will have both central and decentralized, and our objective is to handle both of those scenarios with a consistent you know, cloud-based infrastructure that makes all the data accessible. Very cool. So your platform, is, is that the right way to call it? The, yep, your, your that's what we platform? call it. <laughs> Excellent. Um, yeah. So tell me just a little bit more about, so as how is the data ingested once it gets there? Are you using proprietary applications that you have you know written or prefer? Can you tell us a little bit more about the data once it gets into your platform? Yeah, I'll have to kind of explain a little bit about how, how you know, genomic testing works, all right? So you have, your, you have your raw data that comes out of a, a sequencer. Now, the first complexity you get is that different labs will use different sequencers, different chemical reagents, and different processes. So there's a, a heterogeneous input. And one of our jobs is to understand that, those, those differences and adapt to them. So we will actually 
automatically detect which sequence you're on, will adjust some of the settings on our platform accordingly, so that at the end, all the data that's sitting on our, our platform is consistent. So when you receive information, is it kind of like a picture that has some embedded metadata about where the photo was taken? Is it kind of like that? Does the sequencer apply yeah. some information yeah. to the sequence? Yeah, exactly. I mean, the sequencer will actually have a unique uh, identifying code. It'll tell you what model it is. It'll tell you a bunch of stuff like that. Some stuff you don't pick up from the sequencer, like which reagents were used. But so, you know, either way, you get this file and the files can be quite big. Just to give you an idea, uh, a human genome is 3 billion letters long. So that gives you an idea of the size of the files we're dealing with. You know, it's, you know, several, several gigabytes, you know, I mean, you know, between 50, 50 and, and a terabyte, depending on how much resolution you put into the sequencing. And then, so once you get it up, you have this sort of jigsaw puzzle because you don't read the genome in one bit. You have to sort of read it in chunks and then fit the chunks together. And then you have to compare that with a healthy genome to see where the mutations are. And this is where the first difficulty comes because, well, guess what? If you are, say, uh, a North African or a North American or a French person, the standard genome is actually different, right? So you're kind of, you don't have one reference genome. So there are now projects to make reference genomes per ethnicity so that we can get those variants out. Once you've detected the variants, then comes another problem, which is depending on what you're trying to do, you might need to compare the, a patient's genome with his parents to see if there are new mutations. You might want to look for the mutations that are related to cancer, um, you might be looking for DNA in the blood. I mean, there's lots of different things you do. So what we've done is we've implemented a kind of an app store-like approach where we have different applications which address different needs. Some of those applications we develop in-house. Others we develop in collaboration with research establishments, uh, industrial players, and so on and so forth. So at the end, we have all these different apps, which, again, make it easier for uh, a lab to just say, okay, I'm trying to do this test. Let me just use the you know, liquid biopsy app, upload my data to that, and run it. So I don't know if I'm answering your question, but that's basically the, the flow. Upload the data, which can be automated. We then do the alignment and all this sort of pre-preparatory work, which is called primary and secondary analysis. And then we have a suite of apps which do all the sort of the heavy lifting in terms of making medical sense of what we've got. And then we go all the way through, in some cases, to therapeutic recommendations where we say, hey, this person has this type of cancer, for example, and this cancer responds very well to, you know, X drug. And do you primarily focus on getting to that recommendation or the treatment with the healthcare provider or patient, or are you also aggregating that data for ongoing research? Well, uh, a bit of both. I mean, clearly, you know, one of, one of the objectives is to, you know, come up with a clinical re report that the doctor can use as part of his therapeutic strategy, right? And again, in some cases, you know, for rare diseases, it might be just, just getting a diagnosis may be a huge thing, right? Because people suffering from rare diseases often go through what's called a diagnostic odyssey, where for six or seven years, they have no clue what they have. And they're just going from doctor to doctor, and the doctor's telling them, I don't really know, take an aspirin, call me in the morning. And finally, just telling them, this is what you have, and these are the steps you can take is huge. Then obviously, for other, for other diseases like cancer, you know, getting as far as a therapeutic recommendation is, is, is the objective. You know? So that's from the patient standpoint. And honestly, we are patient-centric, patient-first. 
But another important part of, of treatment is collecting data, which allows us to learn more from the patients we've analyzed to then be able to say, hey, wait a minute, all the patients with this type of cancer seem to have this mutation, and this mutation impacts this medical or biological process. So maybe if you can come up with a drug which addresses that, we might have something. Now, the challenge with using the data like this is, of course, we need to have authorization to do so, patient consent, as it's called. And that can be a, a tricky thing to get, especially in the context of uh, GDPR, the, the, the European uh, Data Protection and Privacy Law, which says that you have to get pretty specific consent to, from the patient. So that's one of the things we're working on all the time with our customers, because remember, our customer isn't the end patient. It's the healthcare provider who is sequencing data and who is buying our, our solution in order to you know, provide services to the patient. So we work with them both to get patient consent, and some say yes, some say no. Sometimes it's a sort of a partnership where we say, okay, let's get the consent and let's together see what we can do with this data, right? And then the other thing is that genet genetic data is great, but you also need to have clinical data, patient outcomes. You need to know what the, what's happening with the patient so you can correlate whatever you see genetically with what's actually happening with the patient. And that's really the fundamental idea behind personalized medicine. Understand your patient better than just generally he's got breast cancer, but what exactly are the mutations driving it? And that's what helps you to personalize the treatment, which is, I think, one of the one of the objectives we have to get to, you know, as a society, in order to improve uh, healthcare outcomes. So I do want to talk a little bit about the data and how you're moving it around some pieces like that. But I'm I'm really curious on that piece around personalized medicine, and as you're talking about access to medicine for maybe the wealthy or the insured. Um, are you able to accomplish that even in, you know, some of the countries or economies where there's not so much wealth or insurance is set up differently? Well, how, how is that coming along in the world? You know, I, I, wouldn't be, I wouldn't sit here and tell you, yeah, that problem's been solved, right? I mean, it, ha it clearly has yeah. not. Um, I think what we're trying to do, I mean, already, if you, you can look at the difference between uh, what I call the single-payer markets, where there's like a national program that's paying for stuff, um, and then the the sort of the you know the private healthcare systems or the sort of segmented healthcare systems. I don't know what the what the right way to describe those is. So in one case, in in the single-payer systems, you need to bring a huge amount of clinical proof to say, yep, this is worth doing for all 60 million or 70 million French people, or you know. You know, you really have to, while in, in markets where you have private healthcare insurance, many, many of these insurers use access to sophisticated treatments as a differentiator and an incentive to, in, to, to buy that particular insurance. So right now, right now, uh, I, I think that, you know, genetics is really at its infancy. We're really just looking now at very specific things like, you know, cancer treatment is a big area. Um, certain somatic or certain certain other diseases are a big area. His, uh, inherited diseases, definitely. But again, you know, rare diseases. Um, where I think we need to get to ultimately is to move out of just fixing people once they're broken and get to the point where you're into prevention. Because you can see very early on when people have predispositions to certain things. And clearly, as people, as the population ages, as healthcare costs continue to increase... We need to be better at addressing medical problems 
before they happen rather than trying to catch up after the fact. So, you know, I believe that in time, that'll be the big, you know, the big aha moment, the, the huge, you know, huge trans- medical transformation. But until now, what we are doing is we are reducing the cost of sequencing. We're making a platform, and this is one of the things we try to do at Sequan Genomics, is make a platform which is compatible with lots of different reagents and sequencers so that the labs can pick the right technologies for them. And the cool thing that you see right now is that after years of having very few players in the market, we're now seeing an explosion in the number of sequencer fab- producers, uh, reagent f- suppliers. So you're getting people who are like ultra low cost, some are ultra accurate, some of them are ultra fast. And that's kind of cool because all of a sudden you can right size your technologies and that will necessarily reduce costs and therefore improve access. Interesting. Yeah, it's definitely, I remember that, it, you know, just Illumina and a few Southern California companies were the name of the game not that long ago. And now there's so many companies out there with so many innovations. It's great to see. Um, Do you share data much? Um, When you think about all these different organizations that are coming about, do you share data across um, organizations? Or is that more done in a country or a healthcare level? Where does the data sharing really occur? Again, we we don't own the data we process, all right? We're we're just a facilitator. So as I mentioned earlier, what we'll do is we will work with the healthcare provider who is usually the last, you know, the interface with the patient and say, okay, you know, so if you're looking at research projects, yes, that clearly often happens, right? Five or six institutions will get together and say, look, we want to do a study on, you know, ovarian cancer. So let's pool our resources. We'll get like a couple of, you know, several thousand patients enrolled, and then, then there'll be some analysis done on that. Um, you also have initiatives that are at the national level, like, you know, the France Medicine Genomique uh, program that we're actually one of the suppliers to. Um, or it's a bit like the, 100, the, the cancer moonshot in the U.S. or the U.K. Uh, genomic project. So you have those national initiatives. And you even have international initiatives of different types. So there's, in Europe, there's a Million Genomes project, which is bringing together 20 countries contributing, you know, data. Uh, and similarly, you'll see inter- international collaborations in, in the Pacific and so on. So there is a lot of sharing. I think there's, you know, one challenge is, you know, there's a concept in data called FAIR, you know, findable and you know, interoperable, accessible and reusable, right? Getting data that is, you know, consistent, that you can say, okay, I can compare these things is tough because some people will, will sequence just the genes related to certain cancers. Some will sequence the whole thing. Uh, some will use one type of sequencer, some will use another. And all of these things introduce noise and complexity. And this is one of the things we spend a lot of time working on is how you use you know, machine learning to denoise and de-silo the data so that it becomes something consistent that you can really make decisions on. You know? So the trade-off that you have to make is between having lots of data that's very inconsistent and actually not that useful uh, and having maybe smaller data sets that are somewhat curated and, you know, that have a lot of pre-production work done on them uh, and which make them potentially more useful. Like, for example, um, when we sequence, we will notice what batch, you know, a patient comes from, okay? So, you know, you normally sequence what's called a run. You don't just do one patient at a time. You do, like, you know, 50 of them. So we will then look to see if there are any mutations that are abnormally frequent, you know, if, if half of the patients have this one mutation, then 
the chances are it's an artifact. It's not really, you know, a mutation. So we'll actually track that and we'll remove those. You know, so there's a lot of work and intelligence that goes into how we structure the data. And we then pour the data into a, a data lake, which is designed to be aware of the different types of mutations you have and the different genetic information. So, you know, a copy number variant or a SNP or, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, structural variant are all handled differently. And all having all that semantics in there uh, means you can do much more interesting and richer data mining. Interesting. So can you talk a little bit about the technology stack? You mentioned you're up in the cloud. Um, how do you get the data from the sequencers to your platform once it's there? Um, are you storing it in many regions, many locations? Maybe just talk a little bit about yeah, the IT side. Bit, again, now I'm not I'm not the technology guy here, right? So That's okay. uh, I can That's give okay. you a sort of a, a high level idea. So if you look at the workflow, um, we we will start at the sequencer and then for smaller installations, they actually do it by hand, the way you would upload a file to Google Gmail. You know, you just like drag and drop. Uh, if you've got like a, a bigger installation, we'll actually have a piece of software called the SecOne Data Sync that'll actually plug into the sequencer. It'll plug into the electronic patient record. It'll plug into the laboratory information management system and pull lots of information in, right? Now, that's extremely important because, um, for example, um, having this metadata... Uh, can be useful in terms of prioritizing uh, the mutations, right? One of the biggest challenges we have is that it's really hard to hire qualified geneticists or biologists who understand, you know, genetics. And as you scale the volume of patient patients that you're treating, you need to do increasing amount of decision support. You need to help a lot more. So if you know the symptoms of a patient, you can then look at which genes are known to be associated with those symptoms and you bring those up and you say, hey, it's probably these three genes. Have a look at those first. And if it ain't that, we'll give you some other choices, you know? So we're doing a lot of work pulling in metadata. We then, as I said, are tracking things like what's run or batch it's in, things like that. Um, from there, a lot of our stack uses open source components uh, that are what are parts of what are called bioinformatic pipelines. So those are sequences of steps that sort of do things like, you know, align the bits of the jigsaw puzzle, compare them with other people, associate them with known information, things like that. And each pipeline addresses a particular medical problem. So, for example, if you're doing cancer, the mutations aren't in every single cell. They're only in the cancerous cells. So you'll have a mix of healthy and cancer cells in one place. You need to separate those, right? If you're doing a hereditary disease, then every single one of your cells should have it. So the, the pipeline is different. And what we then do is we benchmark every single one of these components regularly. We keep monitoring for new ones, so we keep the state of the art on our platform. And when we talk to the medical community, if they say, yeah, you know, but we also need to have detection of, you know, this particular thing. If we don't find a good module, then we'll develop a custom module for that and include that in our, in our app, you know, in the, in the pipeline. And then obviously, as time goes by, we continually benchmark the open source and depreciate our custom modules in favor of the open source where possible, because we're a great believer in the open source and the power of the open source. Okay, so that's kind of how the flow works. And then at the end of it, we have a user interface piece, which is, you know, basically we design it to be very visual, again, to try to make it super easy for the people interpreting this data to have all the information they need in one place. And so that's kind of the, the flow. 
um, the stack is built on, you know, the standard open source stuff, you know, I mean, uh, you know, Go and, uh, you know, um, you know, uh, Elastic. And I, I don't know, I mean, I couldn't really give you the stack in detail. Uh, in terms of the infrastructure architecture, it, it's big. You know, it's, I think we have like 50, 60 boxes running per, per install. Um, we, we tend to host on multiple providers because you, you, you have one issue that depending on which country you're in, quite a few countries have an in-country hosting requirement. So, you know, we have uh, quite a few countries, like in Europe, a lot of countries are happy with an in-Europe hosting. So we have, you know, uh, one or two host, host installs that are, you know, in the EU, in, in France, and in, I, think in, I think in Germany we have another one. Um, and then, you know, as requested, you know, sometimes as we, as we enter a new geography that has this, this sort of requirement, we'll un- fire up another instance. I don't know if that answers Excellent. your question. Yeah, that's great. I ha- I am curious for countries that don't have the cloud. How do, can they access your platform, or is that an area for innovation? I'm thinking I have a home in Costa Rica, and really the cloud's not a big thing there yet. How no, do you help companies yeah. or folks in countries like that? No, I mean, well, there's there's another. I mean, this is something that's on our roadmap, but we haven't done yet. I mean, as a startup, you know, you have to kind of, you know, pick your battles and do them in order. And, um, you know, clearly there is a requirement. There's, a, there's demand in some countries for on-premises or in-country installs, right? So, so on-prem has a number of challenges, especially when you think about uh, cert- clinical certification. You know, there's, you know, a lot of, you know, like FDA certification or CIVDR certification. That's kind of harder to do on an on-premises instance because you need to certify the installation and the infrastructure as well. Uh, and doing that like 10 or 12 times is a huge headache. Um, and, and also, frankly, the places that require this often don't have a big, you know, patient flow. So for now, you know, it's clearly something on our roadmap. I, I expect we'll get to it by end of this year. Um, but but, but our, our priority has been until now on people we can serve with the cloud. Makes sense. So where do you see things going, not just for your company? Um, I'd like to hear where you see the next few things going for Seek One, but for the for the industry as well, kind of how do you see um, this industry and kind of the patient care in the next one or two years really evolving? Are we kind of at, at a kind of a plateau right now, um, or do you think there will be a lot of changes in the coming no, years? No, I, I truly think we're just at the beginning. You know, I mean, um, there, there are many signals that, that, that seem to indicate that, you know, things are going to move very quickly. One of them we've touched on already, which is there's increasing competition in, in terms of the underlying technology providers. And that's always very healthy because it drives down prices and increases the, the different, the, 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 the breadth of the offer. So you get, you know, technologies that are better suited to any particular application. So that's one whole thing, right? And we've already seen you know, prices actually had plateaued for a little while in sequencing, and now they're dropping super fast. I mean, just to give you an idea, um, I'm sure you're familiar with Moore's Law. Uh, actually, sure. Gordon, Moore, Gordon Moore just died just like two away. weeks ago, yes. right? Yeah, he's been in the news and, quite um, a lot recently. Yeah, and the only technology that's, that's reducing prices more quickly than predicted by Moore's Law is sequencing, all right? So we're going from a $2.5 billion sequencing of the first human genome 25 years ago to a sub $100 genome today, okay? And, and, and what that means is if you think of 100 bucks 
in the context of cancer care for one year, right? It's it, it's, it's nothing. It, it's it right? doesn't it doesn't even right. So that's one thing. The second thing is the ways we're going to be using genetics, right? We're going from theranostic, diagnostic today. I tell you what you have. I tell you what you should take for it. We're now going to be moving into early detection of cancer, which is a huge thing because, you know, there are companies out there that are developing technologies to detect cancer at an earlier and earlier stage. And we're one of the companies doing this. You know, there are companies like Grail as well as doing it. There's a few of them. Um, so all of a sudden, if you think about it, what if I tell you that, you know, next year you can take a blood test that will tell you if you have cancer? I mean, you could imagine anybody over the age of, say, 30 being eligible for that, right? Literally life-changing in a lot of ways oh, yeah. and probably yeah. saves a lot of money on treatment, right? Get, catch well, exactly. it early, it saves money, and it's a better patient outcome. Right, because, you know, the earlier, and this is documented, the earlier you, you, you diagnose a cancer, the, the better the survival rates and stuff like that, right? And then if you take it to the third level, which is something I alluded to earlier, right? When you start getting into prevention, you say, okay, I'm going to screen everybody for these 15 or 20 well-known diseases. You know, then all of a sudden, you know, you can kind of begin to anticipate. You can tell parents, okay, look, you know, you have to be aware that you have a risk of transmitting this disease to your kids. Or, you know, so you might want to, you know, be medically supervised during your pregnancy or, hey, you know, you have a vulnerability to breast cancer. So you may want to take more frequent tests, you know, than, than, than somebody who has a lower risk factor. So if you add all these things together, you know, you get closer and closer to a, you know, everybody sequenced at birth kind of kind of model. So, you know, that, that won't happen next year or anything like that, because, you know, the society has to fund it, you have to prove that it works and all that. But, you know, clearly, there's a lot going on there. And I think that those are all going to be exciting. And of course, to enable this, you know, this is probably in line with, you know, with, with, with why we're here, we need to find ways to make the data much more available so we can learn and demonstrate clinical utility on all this stuff, you know. And I think, you know, the challenge today is that, you know, I think governments have to play a part in this. You know, I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm British. I, I lived in the U.S. for many years. So, I, I, you know, I see different philosophies depending on which part of the world you're in. But, you know, clearly uh, a lot of European countries have, have erred on the side of data protection, privacy, um, you know, respect for the individual's rights, which I think is obviously the right way to go. Right. You don't want to be in a world where you can't get insurance because you had a genetic test which says that you're going to, you know, going to get cancer. That would kind of suck. Right. right? Um, right. On, on the other hand, you know, personalized medicine, as I said before, depends on having access to enough clinical data to make inferences and then and, and globally draw correlations between the genetic and the patient outcome. So finding a way to balance that and really and exposing the right data to, to each person, I think, is key. And if anything, you know, what happened in, in data protection with GDPR, I think, is a, a great example. I mean, it is a bit of a pain. You know, as, as a company, you have to jump through a few hoops and it's not, you know, it is a little difficult and it costs. But in a way, it creates a much, it creates trust between, you know, the consumers, I mean, the society at large and the companies using data because they know that, you know, there's some oversight. So I think a similar thing adapted specifically for healthcare data would be a huge plus and would really accelerate the adoption of personalized medicine and genomics. 
So who who can help with this? If you think about, you know, our audience has a lot of technologists and senior leaders of companies and things like that, but driving the governments or the regulations, the data sharing policies, where will that come from? Will that come from patients asking for it, doctors asking for it, technologists, government regulation? I think it's going to be a sort of a D all of the above kind of answer. Clearly, patient advocates, patient advocacy groups are are great because, you know, they vote. So governments listen to them. Uh, so that they're clearly one of the groups, but, you know, they don't necessarily have all the information. So I think it's a combination of, you know, the academic researchers, the patients and industry that all have to lobby for this. And at the same time, who have to be ready. And I'm speaking now as a, you know, as an, as a, you know, as a, as an entrepreneur, as, a, as somebody in the private sector, you know, there has to be a constructive dialogue, you know, um, the I don't care, I want all the data, you know, and we'll, we'll trust us, we won't screw around with, with privacy, isn't going to cut it. You know, I mean, uh, there needs to be some willingness to say, okay, I'll accept some oversight in exchange for this access, and we'll, we'll agree together on what's acceptable and not acceptable. Um, so, I, so, you know, it's, I'm sorry, it's a bit of a wishy-washy answer, but I, I don't think one group is going to solve this problem alone. I think everybody does. Clearly, governments are like with many of these digital technologies, quite far behind current reality. I mean, it's interesting to see what's happening with, you know, AI right now, all the discussions around that. You know, I mean, governments are, you know, miles behind it's just what's the Wild going West. On. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think that, you know, we have to educate government. We have to lobby government. We have to prove that it makes sense because, you know, the default position for, the, for governments tend to be, look, it's going to cost us quite a lot more money to do all this sequencing. So, you know, we don't really want to do it unless, you know, there's, there's some demonstrated cost benefit, cost savings coming down the line. I mean, and ideally pretty quickly, you know. So, you know, there was a great piece of work. I forget who did it now, but I saw a study recently where they kind of looked at all the, all the medical data available on, you know, incidents, you know, how often people get a certain disease, the cost of the disease and so on. And they said, okay, what happens if we screened for these 20 diseases right away. And, you know, the paper was able to demonstrate that, you know, even today, costs would increase, but the, the patient benefits would be tolerable for society in terms of, you know, the, the cost benefit that societies are willing to accept. And that as the cost of sequencing go, goes down, we would very quickly get to a place where we save, we actually save healthcare dollars by, by doing this. You know, so it's obviously it's a it's a simulation. It's a it's a it's a it's a paper experiment. But, you know, I think that's very encouraging. And I do believe that, you know, in the future, genetic testing and personalized medicine will be the way we we really lick this sort of healthcare, this escalating healthcare cost problem and really deliver better healthcare and better quality of life to patients the world over. So that's kind of win-win for everyone. You know, it sounds kind of one kitschy, would, but it's true. Think, if you think, can save yeah. money and have better outcomes, and why not get wouldn't on that, board? Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> yes. <laughs> hey, yeah. Jean-Marc, thank you so much for joining the show today. Um, really well, interesting so conversation and your experience spanning so many parts of this, um, bit, not just the world of genomics, but you know the IT services that have developed and whatnot. It's really interesting to see where you've come in your career and um, you know, what your mission is at the company. Um, we'd love, we'll definitely be 
enjoying watching as you guys progress. And, you know, if you can accomplish your mission, that'll be great for yeah. all of that. Maybe I can loop in some of the more technical people and see, see if we can talk more about, you know, tech stocks and things like that at another time. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah. We'd love to follow up with you on that. That'd be a great second edition. Great. All right, Wilson, thank right. you very much for having me. It was a pleasure chatting. And, Great to um, chat yeah, with well, you, too. Uh, all the best. Thanks for listening to Data Unchained, powered by Hammerspace. To learn more, visit hammerspace.com. If you have a guest you would like to hear on the show, email me at molly at hammerspace.com.